Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to gather together and worship Christ together this morning. And I want to thank Huey and thank you, Dave, for sharing with us that opportunity for Pebbles Ministry as we look at the children of our church. Each one of these children are a precious soul that will live forever and it is our privilege to invest in their lives and pray that the Lord would do a work of salvation in their hearts, and our prayer is that the Lord would raise up the next generation of believers here at Cornerstone that would love and serve him all their days, and I know that's your heart as well, and we want to thank so many of you who are serving in the Pebbles ministry so faithfully and expressing the heart of Christ in that way, and we do pray that uh, many of us more would be moved to see the heart of Christ for these children and to continue to serve uh, the ministry of Pebbles ministry. So thank you, David, for uh, sharing with us. So there could be uh, really no perfect segue into our message this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and it's been just a great joy and privilege to study these truths with you. In Ephesians chapter 1, you'll remember we are studying the great doxology of Paul in verses 3 to 14. It is one long run-on sentence in the Greek Paul is expressing to us the greatness of our salvation, the riches of God's grace that we have received in Christ. He is showing us, taking us from eternity past to eternity future and showing us all that God has done for us through the person and work of his son, Jesus. And in verse 3, he opens his doxology in saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And this morning, I want us to focus in on really just one phrase in verse 5. And that is what Paul says, that in love, he predestined us for adoption. He predestined us for adoption as sons. This morning, I want to speak to you about the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. We spent the last two weeks looking at the doctrine of election in verse 4, where Paul says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul traces our salvation back to a time in eternity past when God sovereignly made a choice of some to be saved. And those chosen ones are to be the recipients of his grace and he predestined them to a future, which is a future of glory. We spent two weeks talking about the doctrine of election and how that doctrine shapes and informs our worship. In fact, it shapes and informs our entire Christian lives. And this morning, we want to spend this Sunday looking at the doctrine of adoption in verse 5. Adoption, which is the consequence, the result, the expression of God's sovereign choice of us. After saying that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, Paul immediately adds, in love, he predestined us for adoption. You'll notice that word predestined. It's another beautiful term in the scriptures. 
The word means to predetermine or to foreordain. The word prohorizo has the idea of marking someone out for a certain destiny or future. The idea is that God in eternity past not only chose us to receive salvation, but he marked us out. He circled us, if you will. And he foreordained our future to be one of glory. He predestined us for adoption as sons. And so adoption is the consequence, the result of God's sovereign choice of us in eternity past. Now this morning then we come to one of the most beautiful doctrines in all the scripture, one of the most precious truths in all the word of God, one of the most precious truths that we ought to savor as brothers and sisters in Christ. The doctrine of adoption. We are children of God. I think we all understand the beauty of adoption. I think even in an earthly sense, we look at earthly adoption, adopting, adoption of children, and we stand amazed at the beauty of that event. That a child who would be born outside of a family, who would have no blood relation to that father or mother, would be adopted into that family and cherished and loved. That is one of the most beautiful things in the world today. Earthly adoption is so beautiful. Even unbelievers cherish the beauty of adoption. Russell Moore in his book, Adoption for Life, writes this moving account of how he went to Russia and he adopted two boys who were to become his own. And he says, when Maria, my wife, and I walked into the orphanage, we were led to the boys the Russian courts had picked out for us. We almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of that place. The boys were in cribs in the dark, lying in their own waste. And leaving them the final day before going home to wait for the paperwork to be completed was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim, one of the boys, calling out for us. He was falling down and convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears of her own. I turned around to walk back into the rooms for a minute. I placed my hand on both of their heads and said, knowing that they couldn't understand a word of English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I didn't think I consciously intended to cite the words of Jesus in John 14, verse 18. It just seemed like the only thing worthy saying at that time. For the next several weeks, they'd be called Maxim and Sergei, their Russian names. However, the nameplates hanging on the wall of their new home in a faraway country read Benjamin and Timothy. You know, even earthly adoption is such a beautiful thing. Even the world celebrates the beauty of adoption. Barbara Walters, the famous TV interviewer, adopted a daughter of her own. And her daughter, Jackie, says of being raised by Barbara, my mother told me when I was very little that there were two ways that babies could be born. They could be born in your tummy or they could be born in your heart. And my mummy said that I was born in her heart. 
And so as we look at the subject of adoption, we are talking about one of the most beautiful things in the world today. Even natural, uh, earthly adoption is one of the beautiful sights that our eyes can see. And yet, earthly adoption, adoption of physical children, is just a reflection. It's just a faint glimmer of the beauty of the spiritual adoption that we have received in Christ. How much more do we as believers in Christ, ought we to celebrate and rejoice in our spiritual adoption that we were not natural children of God, but that God has welcomed us into his family. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this of our text, It is as if we are climbing up a staircase to some wonderful high tower. We reach a kind of platform with a glorious view. Nothing greater seems to be possible. Here is something which is truly staggering in its glory, that we stand before God as his adopted sons. I believe this doctrine must be central to our hearts. I believe this doctrine must be central to our church. This doctrine must be central to how we relate toward God, and it must shape everything that we do in our Christian lives. Just as passionate as I was about the doctrine of election and that we understand that doctrine and stand on its truth, so, brothers and sisters, I am so burdened this morning that you understand your adoption as sons. I'm burdened that many of you have a distance in your relationship with God, that your relationship with God is, is formal, it is routine, and you are not in a day-by-day experiencing intimacy with the Father, the Father who loves you, the Father who cherishes you. I, I'm concerned that many of you have an inaccurate, unbiblical view of God, that you view God as some distant, aloof God who really doesn't care what's going on in your life and and you just sort of do what you think he expects you to do, but you don't sense his love on a daily basis. And I'm concerned that many of us are living as orphans, that we have an orphan mentality in our everyday lives, that we think that we need to figure it out for ourselves, that no one cares for us, no one's going to take care of us, that we need to do it. And all of this is a result of an inadequate understanding of the doctrine of adoption. And so this morning, as we look at Ephesians 1 verse 5, I want to bring to you this morning three essential truths about the doctrine of adoption. Three essential truths which are crucial for you as a believer to understand. First, they'll be real simple. Adoption changes how we view the past. Second, adoption changes how we view the present. And then thirdly, adoption changes how we view our future. So first of all, let's look at the first truth, how adoption changes our perspective 
of the past. Verse 5, Paul says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. We've been predestined for adoption as sons. Now Paul is writing here from a Roman mindset. He's writing here from a Roman context. Paul was a former Roman citizen and he understood Roman law. And so as he writes of adoption, it is really Roman adoption that is informing what he says about our adoption in Christ. And under Roman law, there were two steps that needed to take place for the adoption to be finalized. First of all, the rights of the natural father had to be terminated in order for the adoption to take place. The rights of the natural father had to be severed in order for the adoption to move forward. And it is only after the rights of the biological father were terminated and that relationship no longer ceased to be could the adoption move forward in time. And so the first step was termination. The second step was the adoption itself. Termination led to adoption and those were the two steps necessary in Roman law. Now, things haven't changed all that much in our day to day. Those two steps still need to take place in any adoption. In order for an adoptive parent to take a child into his home, the natural parent has to terminate their rights. But back in the Roman world, this first step was very important. In fact, it may have been more dramatic and more important than it is today because in the Roman world, the father, the natural father, had absolute authority and rule over that child. Patria potestas is what they called it in the Roman world. The rule of the father was unquestioned and unrivaled. Under Roman law, the father had the right to do with that child as he pleased. And as long as that child lived under the rule of his biological father, he had no say in what was to become of his future. That father had absolute rule and absolute authority. In fact, the father's rule was so unquestioned, he could actually put any of his children to death if he was displeased and be unaccountable to anything in the law. For the rights of the biological father to be terminated, there had to be a decisive break in the authority in that relationship. And historians tell us that the severing of this authority was such an important part of the adoption event, it actually followed a three-step process. First, the natural father would send, sell his son as a slave to the adoptive father. The adoptive father would purchase that son and then give the son right back to the biological father. The biological father would then retain all authority and he would sell the child back again. And only after that process was repeated three times, only after the third time the son was sold as a slave to the adoptive father, would the rights of the new family would then become permanent. There was a set process that was clear to everyone that had to be intentional, that had to be voluntary, that had to be attested to so that there was a clear permanent break between the rights of the, the biological father and the rights of the adoptive father. And what Roman law emphasized is that in order for adoption to take place, the rights of the biological father had to be decisively terminated so that no authority existed in that relationship from them, that point on. 
once that relationship was terminated, it was terminated forever. There was no coming back. There was no say. The biological father in that child's life from that point on. And so when Paul speaks about the subject of adoption, he has in mind this practice of termination. The historical setting informs our understanding of adoption. And what it tells us, dear brothers and sisters, is that adoption is not only about joining a new family. Adoption is also about leaving a former authority behind. Adoption is not just about what we have been saved to. It is also about what we have been saved from. And what was the authority we once lived under? Who was the authority who once ruled in our lives? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were not naturally children of God. We were by nature children of wrath. We were children who were headed for eternal condemnation. We lived under the judgment of a holy God. And we lived under the condemnation of a holy God because verse 2 tells us that we were those who were under authority. We were those who lived under the authority of a master. And our master was not kind. And he was not benevolent. Verse 2 says we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. You say, who is the prince of the power of the air? 1 John 5.19 tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We were no exception to that rule. The whole world, all those who don't believe in Jesus Christ are under the power of the evil one. And we as unbelievers were sons of disobedience and his spirit worked in us. We followed the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, we lived under the authority of the God of this world. Small g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We were blinded by the God of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. And if we need any help understanding who our natural father was Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 44 speaking to Jews who were unbelievers you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him he is a liar and the father of lies. You say, wait a second, Dan. I don't remember being a Satanist. Before I came to Christ, I lived a fairly moral life. Was it really that bad? 
Was I really captive to do the devil's will? Did I really follow the prince of the power of the air? Was I really under the rule and the authority of the evil one who rules this world? Was it really that bad? Well, brothers and sisters, please consider this truth. That Satan, the evil one, does not always express his influence through immorality and rampant wickedness. But at times, in fact, many times, Satan expresses his influence through the means of false righteousness. You say, Dan, I was moral, I was righteous, I was religious, I had ethics. Oh, that was the devil's influence. That is his work in this, life, in this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. What the Bible tells us is that we lived under authority. We had a master. We were under his influence. If there is an analogy to the rule of patria potestas, the absolute dominion of an earthly father, it is the forces of darkness which ruled over us before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, salvation is such an amazing thing. Not only because of what we've been saved to, but what we've been saved from. And what we've been saved from is from the forces of darkness ruling over our lives. Colossians 1 verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And because we are those who have been adopted in Christ, the rule we once lived under has been decisively terminated. There's been a severing, a radical break, a breaking of the power of our former master. And we have come under the rule of a heavenly father, a father who loves us, a father who cherishes us. You know, one of the beautiful pictures of adoption, the Bible says, is that we are not only children, but we are children of light. We are children of light. Ephesians 5 verse 8 says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5 says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Our brothers and sisters, let us give God praise this morning. Let's give God praise this morning that we no longer live under our former master. Let's give God praise that he has broken the bonds that once held us, and we are no longer captive to do the devil's will, and we are no longer captive to walking according to his influence. But that God has adopted us into his family, and we are now under the rule, the rule of our Heavenly Father. So the first way adoption impacts our lives is that it changes how we view the past. Once we were in bondage, now we have been freed. Once we were children of wrath, now we are children of light. There's a second way that adoption impacts our lives. And that is adoption transforms our perspective in the present. 
Adoption transforms our perspective in the present. Verse 5, Paul says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, and adoption is the status we enjoy in the present. The blessings of adoption are ours right now, and we enjoy these blessings in our relationship with God. Now, adoption is a legal declaration that has primarily to do with the position of the child. Adoption is a legal declaration that a child has been become a full-fledged member of a new family and that he has the status equal to any natural child. Adoption changes the status, the position of the child, but what it also does is that it brings that child into relationship with the father. And this is where adoption is distinct and a further blessing than justification. You know, in justification, God declares us to be righteous. God stands in his courtroom, and as the judge, he pounds the gavel, and he says, not guilty. He imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our lives so that we are viewed as if we have lived Christ's perfect life. Justification is so essential to the gospel, and justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls, and yet adoption is an even further blessing than justification. Because in adoption, God not only declares us righteous in the courtroom, but as it were, God the judge takes off his robes, and he warmly embraces us and takes us to his home, and he welcomes us as his sons and daughters in Christ, and he relates to us from that point on in love. You know, a judge could declare a criminal to be not guilty and then have no further relations with that person. A a judge could say, you are free to go, but I want you to get out of here. I never want to see you again. But adoption takes the blessings of the gospel one step further, and that adoption ushers us into a relationship. G.I. Packer writes this, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of these relationships. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the father is even greater. I want you to note those words, closeness, affection, generosity. Those are adjectives that the Bible used to describe our Heavenly Father. And I want to ask you this morning, is this your view of your Heavenly Father? Would you say that these adjectives describe your relationship with Him? That you are experiencing His closeness, His affection, His generosity? Because these are the biblical descriptions of who our Father is. 1 Peter 5, verse 7 says, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. That is the love of the Father. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives, guess how? Generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And Matthew 7, verse 11 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, I think about my relationship with my own children. And if they come to me asking me for a piece of bread, I will not give them something that is poisonous for them to eat. I will give them something that is good because I am their father. And God says, 
Dan, you are a sinful father. You are a father that is marked by selfishness, but even you know how to give good things to your children. How much more will your heavenly father be good to you if you come and you ask him, he will receive you. What does the heavenly father give in our lives? He gives good things. He gives good things. James says he gives generously. He gives generously to all. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Closeness, affection, generosity. This is the experience of the Christian who has been adopted. Because he relates to God as a father, and we, and we, we know we are his children. Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, in the Old Testament, the term father was used very unfrequently. In fact, you could read all 39 books in the Old Testament canon, and you will find only 14 references of the term father. And even among those 14 references, most of them were impersonal. That was really a a term that the nation addressed God together as. It was a national address. You don't find individuals in the Old Testament addressing God as father. And when Jesus arrived on the scene in the Gospels, one of the amazing things that he did in his earthly life and ministry is that he addressed God as his father. He addressed God as his father in contrast to the 14 times in all the Old Testament books. There are approximately 60 times in the four gospel records where Jesus addresses God as his father. Jesus addressed God as father. Jesus addressed God only as father. He never addressed God as anything else except for the time when he was on the cross dying and he was being forsaken by his father. And at that time he said, my God, my God. Why, have you, why hast thou forsaken me? No one had ever spoken like this. No one had ever prayed like Jesus Christ. No one had ever had the audacity to call God his father. And what is even more astounding than the use of the term father is that Jesus used the Aramaic term Abba to refer to God. He used the term that was used by the youngest of children. Abba, Father, was Christ's address. You know, it's equivalent to the term Abba in almost every language. The French children say Papa. Turkish children say Baba. In Korean, it's Appa. In Latin, it's Atta. The idea isn't so much a formal address, father, like the Von Trapp children address their father in The Sound of Music, where the father blows a whistle and all the children line up and they address him very formally from a distance, father. The idea behind Abba is one of intimacy and closeness. I remember my children after I come home from a long trip away and I open the door and they cry out, Daddy, you're home. 
We might think fathers of the times at Christmas or at the times at, at birthday parties where you give your child a really good gift and he says to you with a big beaming smile on his face, Daddy, thank you. It's, it's an intimate term. It's a, it's a term of a child. And you know, when I was um, raising my children, when they were all babies, I, I really wanted their first words to be, Dada. And so I repeated to them when they were babies, I kept saying to them, Dada, 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 because I wanted the first words out of their mouth to be Dada. And they opened their mouths, and I think almost every single one of them, when they first opened their mouths, they said, Mama. <laughs> you know, mamas are very important, and dads, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't um, rival them. And I think their second words were uh, no, and their third words <laughs> were please. And then after that, I think they finally got around to saying dada. The point is that that term is one of the first words a, a child learns to say. And this term is one of the first things a Christian learns to say. Abba, Father. You know the only thing more revolutionary than Jesus addressing God as his Abba Father? I can only think of one thing more radical, more shocking, more revolutionary than this. And that is that we as believers in Christ have the very same privilege of calling God our Abba. That is absolutely stunning. That is what Martin Lloyd Jones called something staggering and glory that we would be called children of God. You know, the Old Testament knew nothing about this kind of intimate address because the Old Testament emphasized that God dwelt in in inapproachable light, that God was holy and that man is sinful and that the only way that man can approach a holy God is through the means of sacrifice and through the means of offering. The whole architecture of the tabernacle and the temple testified to this fact that there is a great barrier, a veil between man and God and that veil can only be approached through blood offering. And what Jesus does when he comes in the New Testament era is he fulfills with his death on the cross the entire sacrificial system. He offers the perfect sacrifice once and for all, the perfect offering once and for all that completely fulfills everything that the Old Testament system ever spoke of. And when Jesus died on the cross to offer that sacrifice, the veil that was in the temple was torn in two, indicating that now access has been made for sinful man to come boldly into the holy presence of God. And it is through his sacrifice on the cross that we have received adoption as sons and we no longer approach God from a distance. No, we come to God and we cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. You know, I have a burden this morning for you, the members of Cornerstone, that you live in the light of this truth, that you not only understand this truth theologically, but that you understand this truth experientially. You know, I have a burden for you as members of Cornerstone that many of us understand in our heads that yes, God has adopted us, but we are... We are not experiencing on a daily basis the intimacy and the joy of a relationship with a father. That to us, experientially, God is still distant and he is still aloof and he is still uncaring. And we must still make sacrifices and atonements of our own in order to gain his favor over our lives. And I want you to know that Romans 8.15 tells us 
that God not only wants us to understand adoption, God wants us to experience the blessings of it on a daily basis. Romans 8.15 says that God has sent the spirit of adoption into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You know, there are two sendings, two sendings in relation to adoption. God sends his son that we may receive adoption, and then God sends his Holy Spirit that we may experience adoption. God sends his Holy Spirit to minister that truth to our hearts so that we experience the assurance of our adoptive status in the family of God. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives is that our heart cries out, Abba, Father. We understand that we are accepted as children of God and that we can boldly come into the presence of our Father. You know, timidity, insecurity, formality, distance, a lack of assurance, those are all contradictory to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives is so focused on affirming our sonship before God the Father that Paul calls him in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. He actually calls him the spirit of adoption. He is the spirit of adoption because that is his ministry. He confirms experientially this truth in our lives so that we experience assurance as children of God. Well, brothers and sisters, is your walk with God one that is characterized by distance or formality? On a day-to-day basis, do you find yourself understanding God intellectually but not drawing near to him intimately? Is your Christianity just about doing Christian things? Is it just about doing the routines of the Christian life or is it marked by a joy in your relationship with the Father, a joy that has been purchased for you through Christ's work on the cross? If you feel that your heart is far away from this truth, let me just encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you, to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, that you would walk by the Holy Spirit, that he would produce this fruit in your life. It is the Holy Spirit who will produce this fruit in your life that you will cry out, Abba, Father. My prayer is for you as members of our church is that you would walk by the Spirit and that you would trust in the Son and that you would draw near to the Father in intimate relationship because God has adopted you as his children. Adoption transforms our perspective on the past. We are no longer children of darkness. We are children of the light. Adoption transforms our perspective on the present. We draw near to God because he is our loving father. And then lastly, finally, and very important, adoption transforms our perspective on the future. Adoption transforms how we view the future. Romans 8, 19, Paul says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 23, he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who has the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Oh, brothers and sisters, central to the doctrine of adoption, central to the whole idea of us being sons of God in Jesus Christ, 
is the whole picture of inheritance. It is the whole idea of inheritance. Because we are sons, we have the legal status of children of God who will receive the inheritance of the Father. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that we have an inheritance in heaven which is unfading and will not pass away, which is reserved in heaven for us. And we are protected by the power of God until that future day when we will receive our full inheritance as sons. And Romans chapter 8, verse 19 says that all of creation is longing for the day when the adopted child, children of God will be glorified in the Father's presence. And we await that day that Romans 8.21 tells us will be the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As adopted sons of God, we not only look to the past and see how God has gloriously released us from the bondage we once lived under, we not only rejoice in the present because we have, through Christ's work, an intimate relationship with God our Father, but we also live in hope. We live in light of the future, our future glorification, where we will reach the culmination of God's redemptive plan, when we will receive what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies, when we will receive our perfect, glorified, resurrected bodies, perfectly fit for the new heavens and the new earth. And on that glorious day, when the revealing of the sons of God occur, we will be conformed to the image of God's Son. Romans 8.29 tells us. We will reach the fulfillment of all that God has planned in eternity past and receive our full inheritance as sons of God in Christ. And so we live in the light of a glorious future. We live secure in that future because we are presently today sons of God in Christ. As Romans 8.16 says, we are children, and because we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You say, why did God do this? Why did God do all of this? Why would he adopt children of wrath and make us his children in his spiritual family? Ephesians 1 verse 4 Paul says, in love. God did this in love before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 says he did this according to the purpose of his will. He did this because it was simply his good pleasure to do so. And verse 6 tells us that the reason God did this is to the praise of the glory of his grace. He adopted us that he may put his grace on display, that we as his children would praise him and worship him for forever and forever once we are glorified. Russell Moore went on to complete his adoption of his two Russian boys. He brought them back to his state and states and went on to raise them in America. And he writes of their homecoming back to America that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. He says they had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They never heard the sound of a car door slamming. He says, as we left the orphanage, I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, who was now named Timothy, that place is a pit. If you only knew what was waiting for you. 
a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no reference point. To them, the orphanage was home. He says, we knew that the boys had acclimated to our home when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. We knew that they had understood our love for them when they stopped acting like they had to scrounge for another meal. They knew there would be another meal coming and they don't have to fight for the scraps that are left over. There came a day when one could cry out, Maxim or Sergei, and no one would respond. Their old names now meant nothing to them. They seemed to them to be someone else's names, and they were. Oh, brothers and sisters, we too have received a great adoption. But like Maxim and Sergei, at times, it takes us time, it takes a struggle to fully understand and experience the full blessings of our position in Christ. We reach back to the orphanage, the orphanage of sin, the orphanage of this world, the orphanage of our past that we once lived under, and we reach back knowing that it is the pit of squalor, but it was the only thing that we're familiar with. And we have difficulty understanding that, no, that is not your home. Your home is here with your heavenly Father, the one who loves you. Well, brothers and sisters, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us be led by the Spirit. Let us be filled with the Spirit. Let us be taught by the Holy Spirit of God. Let us allow Him to come into our lives and to fill our hearts with the sweet assurance that we are no longer orphans. We no longer have to fight for the scraps of this world. We can live as adopted sons in God's family. And let us, brothers and sisters, when it's all said and done, give praise to the glory of God's grace. Let us give praise to the glory of God's grace. For he has not only elected us in eternity past, but he has adopted us as sons in Christ Jesus. Would you bow in prayer with me? And let's close our time together. Our Father, our hearts are filled with joy this morning, just recognizing your love for us. Well, what a glorious truth. What a glorious doctrine. Lord, the doctrine of adoption. Your love for us as your children. Oh, Father, I pray that this doctrine, this doctrine, would be at the center of each believer here, Lord. The center of our hearts, the center of our lives, the center of how we relate towards you, the center of how we do ministry, the center of how we serve, the center of how we relate to one another. In the body of Christ, may this truth, this doctrine of adoption be the truth that transforms everything that we do as Christians and everything that we do as a church. You know, Father, I pray that if there is a distance, I pray, O oh Lord, that if there is formality, I pray, O oh Lord, that if there is an inaccurate view of who you are, O oh Father, may we first of all repent of our unbiblical notions of you as 
being a God who is stingy and a God who is uncaring. And oh, Father, I pray that there would be the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, teach us these things as this teaching closes. Oh, Holy Spirit, continue to teach every heart this morning that we rejoice in the greatness of what you have done. We give to you all the praise and glory. And we thank you for this time. In Christ's name.